joining us for today's episode of The Play Readers, a podcast where we discuss unusual or infrequently produced plays. I'm your co-host, Andrea. And I'm Nick. And we are The Play Readers. Today's episode is about Come Back Little Sheba by William Inge. I'm a little bit more familiar with some of Inge's other works. Um, I I worked on a production of Bus Stop back when I was in high school. And when I was in college, we put on Picnic. I don't know so much about this one. So what can you tell me, Nick? Comeback Little Sheba was William Inge's first successful play. I think he did have one play that preceded it. Uh, that he had written, and he was still working as a teacher when he wrote this particular play. Oh. It was produced locally, I think, and then ended up on Broadway. The first production was presented by the Theater Guild at the Booth Theater, which pretty famous New York theater. Sure. And that was in 1950. Okay. Uh, the most recent production, there's been a, a couple of revivals here and there. There was one that was fairly recent in 2008. And there was also a film version made at one point, right? There was, yes. 1952, I want to say. Oh. The lead role, Lola, was actually played by the same actress, uh, Shirley Booth, on both Broadway and in the film version. Oh, that's neat. I haven't actually personally watched the movie, so I can't tell you much about it beyond that. But it's it was both Shirley Booth. It was her character. Okay. So what about William Inge's career after Come Back Little Sheba then? Most people, I think, would know the play Picnic. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that you had been involved with the production at one point in time as well. Yes. That was the play that won William Inge the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1953. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how he became a well-known playwright. He was a, he would have been a contemporary of Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams, mm-hmm. for example. And his style is very much along that same direction. It's very heavy drama, sort of a selective realism to it. Okay. He is also known for Bus Stop, which you also mentioned that you had been with yes. uh, at one point in time. A lot of community theaters like Bus Stop. It does have some colorful characters, and it has this big talent show scene in it and everything. Yep. Personally, I think it's a little problematic in yeah. some ways, but, yeah. uh, I mean, we could do an entire episode on the problematic elements of William Inge's plays. <laughs> The other play that I am familiar with of William Inge's is called The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. Great title. It was a period piece. It takes place in the 1920s. And Inge himself seems to have kind of a fondness for that nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Getting back to Comeback Little Sheba, we obviously have a predominant female lead. What does the rest of the cast look like? There are really three prominent roles, although the lead is absolutely Lola. She's approaching middle age. She's described as being 39, 38, something like that. Mm -hmm. Her husband, Doc, who is about the same age as she is. And then they have a little boarder who lives with them, who um, Lola had converted the dining room area into a bedroom, and they have this boarder named Marie, and she's 18 years old. And there's, there's a bit of a supporting cast in this. There's a lot of smaller roles. Uh, there are the like the AA buddies. There's two guys who have one scene, mm-hmm. and there's a milkman and a mailman, and there's the neighbor Mrs. Kaufman. They have little scenes here and there. Uh, there's the the two guys that Marie is kind of sort of seeing at the same time, Bruce and Turk. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and so you have some smaller roles, but really it's mostly about Lola. She is the character who is on stage for the entire play. Oh, wow. That's pretty demanding. So for those minor roles that you mentioned, are they the type of roles that you could conceivably double up if you were kind of short on actors or, you know, just fully flesh out with individuals depending on what kind of talent you have? Personally, I think the only doubling up that you might be able to get away with if you had actors who could really play the range, Mm -hmm. you might be able to double up the milkman and the mailman with the two Alcoholics Anonymous guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just the first thing that popped into my mind. For the most part, I think because this is an offshoot of realism, and I think because of the tone of the play, maybe that's not the kind of thing you want to do with this. Like every single role should probably be played by a different actor. Okay, that's fair. Are there any significant set requirements or costume requirements or anything like that that, you know, somebody producing this might need to look out for? Within the stage directions, the description of the set, there is a lot of detail. So the set is calling for something very realistic. The set itself is Lola and Doc's house, really just the kitchen and the living room parts of that house. In the middle of the set, there is a staircase and a table with a telephone on it. But other than that, that's it. That's it for the set. The dining room that was converted into a bedroom for Marie, that's off stage. And the set actually goes from being kind of grimy and dirty in the very first scene to being all clean and picked up in the second scene. Hmm. And that's all within the first act, so you're not really looking at an intermission to be able to do that in. You'd have to do it probably during a normal scene change. Yeah. And exactly how far into detail you want to get, it really depends on the theater. Uh, I don't think there are any major set requirements that would make this outside of the range of what, say, a community theater could do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I could very easily see a professional theater doing this and just having a, an incredibly detailed and realistic set. Sure. Besides that, uh, there aren't really a lot of major technical requirements for this play. There are some physical requirements, and when I describe the plot, I'll get into that. There are some action that would have to be choreographed very carefully, I think. Oh. Besides the fact that you've got some acting challenges involved with this, Mm -hmm. I don't think the technical requirements are really outside of the realm of what pretty much anybody should have. There's, There's nothing that really stands out as... This is something impossible to do outside of cleaning the entire stage. (laughs) And exactly how you want to go about doing that would really depend on how much detail. I mean, if you just clutter up the stage and have a stage manager come through and pick up the clutter, you might be able to pull it off that way easy enough. Okay. Um, Well, why don't we just go ahead and dive into the plot then? What happens? What is this play about? Lola is a middle-aged woman, or approaching middle age, and she's really looking back at her lost youth at this point in time. And she and Doc got married because they ended up with a pregnancy on their hands. Oh, dear. And the baby ended up dying. So they're childless. They can't have children. So he 
kind of sank into alcoholism. Oh. And over the course of the play, I mean, when we begin the play, he's in recovery. Okay. He's been sober for a year or almost a year. Mm -hmm. He goes out. He works during the day. He comes home at night. He does some work with Alcoholics Anonymous as a sponsor. Right. Lola is pretty much just a housewife. Mm Mm-hmm. And she doesn't really do the the cleaning the house type of stuff because again it's it's very grimy and dirty when we open this play. Sure. But she's she's bored, huh. for lack of a better word. She really doesn't have a lot of stuff going on. She doesn't have a job of her own. And again, it's 1950. Not uncommon. Yeah, and she's got this boarder right now who is Marie, and Marie is 18 years old. You know, fresh out of school, mm-hmm. talking about taking college courses. And she's just youth personified, right? basically. And so Lola sort of kind of tries to live through Marie vicariously. Okay. You know, she sees the youth. She remembers her own youth. She sort of tries to enjoy the more romantic and physical and sexual elements of youth (laughs) sort of vicariously. Okay. She's a little voyeuristic throughout this play. Doc, on the other hand, sees Marie as the personification of innocence maybe like a daughter that he never got a chance to have something like that maybe okay so we've got these three characters and every morning lola gets up and she goes to the door and she calls for little sheba and little sheba is a dog that they had and they talk about it quite a bit but the dog it got old and then it vanished one day just kind of ran off and they haven't seen it again? Yeah, she just wandered off. And so Lola goes out and calls out for, for little Sheba to come back. Mm-hmm. There is an important element of symbolism here that's that's pretty direct. It's pretty easy to see. Little Sheba represents Lola's youth. Okay. Uh, and, and you see that throughout the entire play. The, the call for little Sheba is her sort of pining for her lost days. Mm-hmm. Something that she eventually needs to accept as gone and move on from, maybe? Well, yeah, that would be that would be her arc for the play. Okay. Is that she needs to move on from that. There's some discussion. I mean, it's a lot of exposition in this opening scene, so I'm not going to go down to every single little conversation that ends up happening. Mm-hmm. But we come to find out that Marie is a college student, and one of the things that she's studying is art. Or she has to do a life drawing. Okay. Using a model. And the model she uses is this really hot athlete guy named Turk. Ooh. Okay. She talks about (laughs) Turk. She also talks about this other guy. Mm -hmm. The other guy's name is Bruce. And Bruce is this, he comes from a wealthy background. He's got a steady job as soon as he's done with college. Yeah. And Bruce is interested in Marie. So she's got two guys Mm -hmm. who are both really ideal for completely different reasons. Right. And Doc kind of denies that this is happening. Of course. He does not like the fact that Turk is modeling. He likes the idea of Bruce because Bruce is the steady, stable, nice guy. Yeah. Right. Whereas Turk is kind of a, he sees him as kind of a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't like the fact that Lola sort of watches them. Right. Because when Turk is posing for Marie, Lola is watching. Is Turk naked? Well, he's not completely naked, no. They oh. make this big thing about how the, the women get <laughs> naked, but the guys don't. 
Uh, yeah, the, the double standard is there, and, and Lola actually questions it at one point. So why is it okay for, for the women to get naked but not for the guys? Uh-huh. And Doc's got nothing for it. He's like, well, it's just different. <laughs> and that's pretty much the end of it. Uh. So um, Lola tells Marie she can use the living room for the modeling and the Turk and all that other stuff. Doc leaves for work. Mm-hmm. Lola kind of encourages the fact that Marie is kind of physically interested in Turk, but more future realistic mm-hmm. interest in Bruce. Yeah. She likes it. Yeah, this is probably something that she never had a chance to do. Yeah. Doc takes off, Marie takes off, and then we have this long bit during the first scene where it's really just Lola by herself. Mm-hmm trying to find something to do with her time. And so she talks to the neighbor, Mrs. Kaufman, uh, who she earlier suspected of poisoning their dog. Oh. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Mrs. Kaufman is a first-generation German immigrant. Okay. So she would speak with an accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of talks with, flirts with both the mailman and the milkman. Mrs. Kaufman or Lola? Lola. Okay. And the milkman, of course, I think he ends up sticking around longer than than anybody because everybody's, you know, they got other stuff to do. So they can't be detained by Lola forever. (laughs) Uh, The milkman, I think, is the guy who who works out regularly. So he's actually showing off exercises and that sort of thing. (laughs) She's really, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's not that she's wanting to have a physical encounter with anybody. She's not being unfaithful to Docker at all. She just really badly needs attention because she's got nothing going on with her day. Mm-hmm. And Doc is really all she has, that and Marie. But, you know, she knows that Marie's not going to be around forever. Yeah, Marie's going to be doing her own thing. So we find out sometime during this first scene that Bruce is going to be coming to visit. Right. And Bruce is the dependable guy that Marie... Everybody thinks Marie should marry because he's he's the nice guy who's got the money. And so Lola agrees to clean everything up, and they talk about having a dinner and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. So between Act 1, Scene 1, and Act 1, Scene 2, mm-hmm. there's this changeover where everything is cleaned up because Lola has spent all day cleaning house. Right. So the, the next day... We know that Bruce is coming. We uh, and Doc, of course, is absolutely amazed at the changeover. He comes home. Yeah, he has this weird Doc's relationship with Marie. He's is his life is very unstable at this point because he's a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I should note with Doc's alcoholism, they keep a little bit of whiskey in the house. Oh. Basically just for company, but it sort of represents his willpower. Yeah. Can he have that alcohol there and not touch it? Right. And he's gone almost a year without without going anywhere near it. Mm-hmm. So he has this weird moment where he's listening to the radio. He's trying to get um, he's trying to get a radio show on. Mm-hmm. And he hears a broadcast of the song Ave Maria. Okay. And uh, he has this weird little moment. He really, I think, clings to this idea of youth innocence. And so Marie sort of represents that that need. There's a period of time here where it's just Doc and Lola on stage, and Lola really reminisces. And Lola's really kind of focused on a lot of the regrets. Mm-hmm. 
because Doc was supposed to become a real doctor and instead he becomes a chiropractor. Oh. That's not William Inge slamming chiropractors. It's just 1950. Yeah. So he's kind of taken this lesser position because he got his girlfriend pregnant yeah. before he was able to complete the real medical school and had to change plans. And then, of course, they ended up with no with no kid at all when the plans got changed. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of reminiscing going on. And Doc's attitude is very Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just forget the past, move forward, be a better person for tomorrow, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So that's what he clings to is keeping his path forward. Right. That's how he deals with his past not being what he wanted it to be. Right. Somewhere during this reminiscence going on, the discussion, very depressing and sad discussion, uh, Marie shows up with Turk. Okay. And Marie accidentally embarrasses Lola because she's dancing the Charleston or something. There's a real sense of the 1920s in this house. Okay. Because that's probably where it was decorated originally. Uh-huh. And so it's been kept that way. They just never updated. They never updated. It so was... she's dancing the Charleston and stuff, and Marie comes in and says something real innocent, but it just cuts her down. Yeah. Really, really bad. And then Turk and Marie do their modeling thing, uh, kind of make out with each other. Doc's really, really uncomfortable with this. Doc likes Bruce and doesn't like the fact that Marie is flirting with Turk. Nice girls don't do that. That's what he says, right? That's his attitude on the whole thing. At one point in time, Turk's presence gets Doc to kind of second, give that bottle of whiskey a second glance. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway, eventually Doc and, and Lola, they leave, and Marie and Turk are left alone, and it's implied that they're going to have sex. Oh, wow. I mean, they go out for a drink first or something. But, uh-huh. But it's really implied that they're just going out for a drink to warm up. And yeah. And come back later and have a little fun in her bedroom. Uh-huh. So that is the end of the first act. Okay. The set doesn't change hardly at all between acts, although it is about the midway play point with the play. So I'm pretty sure if you were to actually produce this, you'd probably put your intermission between Act 1 and Act 2. Are there other acts? No. Okay. And there's four scenes for Act 2. So it it it'll it sort of seems like there's more stuff there, but they're shorter scenes. Okay. Well, seems like a pretty reasonable spot to have a break then. So what does Act 2 look like? Doc and Lola, they get up next morning. It's kind of a morning like any other. Yeah. You know, it's, it very much is, is sort of the same as what we had before, except Turk is still there. <gasps> and it's the next morning. Oh, the scandal. Yes. <laughs> and Doc leaves for work. And so Marie tries to time Turk leaving with Doc being gone. So he leaves without knowing that Turk stayed the night? Yes. Oh, goodness. But he comes back. Of course he does. He forgot something. Uh Uh-huh. Turk is there all hot and semi-naked and sneaking out. They face (laughs) each other for a moment. (laughs) And then Turk mumbles something and just leaves. Right. And Doc, of course, knows exactly what happened. How could he not? And he snaps. Yeah. And he ends up going right for the whiskey. Oh, okay. Puts it under his raincoat. 
And, uh, and that's pretty much how the scene goes. That's most of the entire scene is just this day like any other, except Marie had sex with the bad boy. Yeah. And so Doc snaps, runs off with his whiskey. The next scene is later that evening. Okay. So the lights go down, lights come back up. It's later that evening. Um, it's just Lola and Marie mm-hmm. at first because they, they're not sure where Doc is, but, but Lola is trying to keep this dinner going. She is going to do this for Marie because Bruce is coming uh-huh. and we want to impress Bruce. Okay. And Lola doesn't care that Marie had sex with Well, of course not. It's, it's, it, to her, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, she's probably a little titillated and, you know, it's, it's not like she didn't have premar- premarital sex. So yeah, she doesn't think too much about yeah, it. Yeah, she's okay. Bruce shows up, and Bruce is the perfect man. He is going to be able to provide pretty much anything they want. Marie wants to have lots and lots of babies, so he's not going to have a problem with that. Uh huh. Lola has a few moments alone during this scene where she calls a guy named Ed Anderson. Mm-hmm. We Ed Anderson is uh, Doc's AA sponsor. Oh, okay. Because she's concerned because that whiskey's gone. She's noticed that it's gone. Yeah, and okay. she is freaking out yeah, about this. That's understandable. And so she tries to cover, I mean, she wants it to have be a good evening for Bruce and Marie. And uh, at the end of the scene, she sets up dinner for them and then leaves. Just leaves them alone yeah. entirely. So then we got to act two, scene three. And again, these most of these acts are relatively short. Uh, it's 5.30 the next morning. Lola has maybe been in and out, but otherwise she's been up all night waiting for Doc. Oh, gosh. And Doc shows up, and he is so blind drunk mm-hmm. that he, I don't know if, if you've ever been around some really hard drinkers before, but they kind of get to the point of blackout drunk. They're still surprisingly lucid seeming. Sure. He's really wasted. He comes in quietly. He tries to play sober, but he gets real defensive real fast mm-hmm. when Lola starts asking him questions about stuff. He even, the funny thing is, he actually thought ahead to get some whiskey to put the whiskey bottle back. Because he thought she wouldn't notice. I, I, well, or, he was just wasted. Well, yeah. I guess, and Drunk logic. Figured he would have some plausible deniability or something. Yeah. Who knows what this guy's reasoning was. Yeah. Uh, He was out just getting hammered, though, all night. Oh, man. And he opens up a lot of wounds. I mean, he just goes after her. He attacks her appearance. He attacks her weight. He uh, Mm. calls her and Marie sluts. He is angry that Lola got all cleaned up just for Marie to To get get with somebody else. Yeah. Uh, He's just, he's angry and he's hurt and he's just absolutely wasted. And he goes into violent mode and grabs a hatchet. (gasps) Oh! Now this is this is that scene that I was talking about earlier, right? Yeah. This would be a dangerous one because you're probably going to have a relatively, I mean if if not a sharp one, at least probably a real hatchet for a production like this. So you're definitely going to want to have two actors trust each other. Yeah. And at some point in time, I want to say he he kind of clunks out a little bit because she puts up some resistance to being chopped. <laughs> 
Gosh, I should hope so. And Mrs. Kaufman shows up. Really? Mrs. Kaufman is really, really supportive. She knows there's something going on. Yeah. And then we got these two guys that we've never seen before. They show up. They are Ed Anderson and Elmo Houston. These are the AA guys. These are the AA guys. These guys are so completely no-nonsense. Oh, for sure. When it comes to everything. They know what's going on. It's like they've handled it before. Their initial their initial response is, we're taking you to the hospital. Yeah. Now, we've heard about the hospital before. Doc has talked about ending up there, and he hates it. He, he thinks of it as hell on earth. Is this... A regular hospital, or are we talking a it's mental? A men- it's a mental institution, okay. is what it is. So he would be going in with people who are legitimately, have severe, unstable mental health problems that make them dangerous. Right. That type of thing. Well, I mean, given his current situation, well, and he's kind of he, dangerous too. He protests. He says, you put crazy people there. And then Ed just counters by saying, you just tried to kill your wife with a hatchet. Oh, good. What, what do we call that? Yeah. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. So they're not taking no for an answer, yeah. basically. And there's this whole scene where, where Doc's trying to not get taken away, but he knows he's too wasted to, to fight back. And he's clearly not well and these guys you know they they've been part of his support network for the last year so gosh yeah how can how can he not go with them yeah he does talk them into giving him another drink (gasps) really takes a pretty heavy swig of it yeah oh well they i guess they figure it's not going to do him any harm now as well (laughs) he's already fallen off the wagon yeah well they they tell him he's he's going to the hospital there's no two ways about it so they figure okay we'll give you this one thing but then we're going to the hospital yeah i have zero experience with uh addiction or any kind of recovery like that so i don't know like what the best way to handle that type of thing would be, but oh gosh. Well, this was, again, this was 1950. They really didn't take a lot of nonsense. This is a generation of people whose grandparents were real-life cowboys. That's true. Right. They just got done fighting a war, too. He does eventually go, and we get this final scene during this, well, this is still Act 2, Scene 3. Just after Doc is gone, Ed and Elmo have taken off with him. Marie shows up says that she and Bruce are engaged, they're going to be married, she's going to drop out of college and move in with them. And have lots of babies. And have lots of babies and live happily ever after. So Uh Marie got exactly what she wanted. Yeah. She had a nice little fling, and now she's got a stable, secure future ahead of her. Mm, Okay. So I think the, the thing is, I think that Lola would have been probably more congratulatory, except that she had just gone through that experience. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, I mean, Lola would have more than likely been completely cool with, yeah. with what happened there. She probably would have been thrilled. Anyway, we get to the final scene, mm-hmm. and now we're at sort of an epilogue because it's the next, well, it's about a week later. Okay. And Lola is up doing her thing, and she has a little scene with Mrs. Kaufman. Mm-hmm. And says that that uh, Doc is getting out that day. And she's got a little scene with the mailman, a little scene with the milkman. Milkman shows up with a magazine that he appeared in that he was real proud of. <laughs> and uh, The Milkman magazine. It's it's like a, a, a bodybuilder's magazine. Oh. That the milkman ended up in. <laughs> I don't know. It's it kind of a nice touch. Yeah. 
uh, I, I just, all the acting in this play, I sort of imagine in that 1950s radio voice that you see in like old TV shows like Leave it to Beaver. Uh-huh. You know, that's that's kind of the, the style of performance that I imagine for all of these scenes. So, so there's a little bit of resolution there with Lola, her relationship with Mrs. Kaufman and with the milkman, and then Doc returns home. Yeah. And it's real awkward because when she sees him, it startles her. Yeah. And he, you know, he they kind of start in with this sort of awkward conversation, and then he just breaks down. Yeah. You know, falls to his knees, crying his eyes out. Please don't ever leave me. Please don't ever. I don't know what I did. I, and he seriously has no clue what happened to him because he was blackout drunk. Completely blackout. Okay. And so he's just begging her. Mm -hmm. You know, don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I know I don't deserve you, that sort of thing. And so she kind of forgives him, Mm -hmm. takes him back in. This is kind of a common theme with William Inge plays. Yeah. Or or that element of forgiveness. Although I think part of the reason why I personally prefer Come Back Little Sheba is I think that Doc is more forgivable than a lot of his male characters in his plays tend to be. And he he does... I'm I'm sure the way that it's written and the way that it's likely going to be performed is he's genuinely uh, remorseful. He's he's genuinely contrite about everything that happened. You know, starting with certainly falling off the wagon in the first place. Like he almost certainly recognizes that this was a situation where he messed up big time, and he is sorry. So it makes a little bit more sense for her to be okay with forgiving him than it would be in, in certain other situations. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. What happens after that is really just a bit of resolution. Mm-hmm. Doc does make a comment about getting a dog. Okay. He talks, I think he says a basset hound or a bloodhound or uh, hunting dog of some sort, basically. I love bassets. And Lola has this last monologue about a dream that she had that involved just about everybody. Mm -hmm. And she sort of, during this description, she talks about letting go of little Sheba. Right. So that's basically her arc, is letting go of her youth. She had one last opportunity to sort of enjoy it vicariously. Yeah. And that's the end of the road now she has to accept that this is her life and she's got to move forward with doc right and that's the end of the play so you mentioned that there's a a pretty good monologue from lola at the end um would that be like a good audition piece on the subject of audition pieces within this play there's a couple of good ones with lola yeah there's one that's and i i think with monologues for real professional auditions now for like where we live, where it's mostly just community theater, it's it's could be anything uh, for the most part. But I think for professional auditions, you want monologues that have more of a an internalized story as opposed to just being a big expositional information dump. That's fair. Uh, that said, there is one relatively good, it's expositional, but it's where Lola describes what happened with Doc and her to the milkman. Okay. And he's really wants to leave and go about his job, and she really wants him to stay and just talk to her 
and that's in the first scene. That's a pretty good monologue, I think. Mm-hmm. There's also the the very end when she talks about her dream uh, might work as a monologue. But honestly, I'd say the best one is probably the one where she she detains the milkman yeah. with her, her life story, so to speak. Uh-huh. Because uh, there's a lot of sadness in it. She's really, really desperate for attention. Mm-hmm. And so you really kind of get a sense of exactly where her life is and where her dissatisfaction with it happens to lie. Okay. So we already spoke a little bit about, you know, certain set requirements. And, you know, you talked about a little bit about uh, the the house going from very, very dirty and cluttered to clean over the course of a scene change. Um is there anything else that someone looking to produce this play might need to keep in mind? It's not a comedy. I would say that's probably number one. Um, I am currently, presently in real life, working with a very small community theater, and we're doing a production. I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but it's not a comedy that we're doing. And it really seems to throw the audience a lot. So depending on what your theater is, doing you would have to keep in mind this is kind of heavy drama right and so it really depends on what your specific theater is accustomed to doing if you are like this local theater that i am working with probably not the best of choices just because the audience might not know what to make of that sure i think it would work great with professional theaters i think it would work really well with collegiate theaters sure even though you wouldn't have age-appropriate actors, obviously, in, in that case. But mm, yeah. uh, I think it's the kind of thing that a collegiate theater could do. I think that community theater, if they, are, if they have an audience that's used to getting the occasional drama, yeah. then it would be great. Okay. There is one local community theater that I know of that, at least at one point in time, would have been very successful, I think, with Comeback Little Sheba. Because uh, it does kind of, it did kind of fit what they were doing. Okay. This comes from a period of time where there was a real emphasis on the alienation of the modern man and what it is to be, you know, not a king or not super duper wealthy or anything like that, but to be very ordinary. Yeah. So if you have the kind of theater where this would be a good fit for you, um, who owns the rights to this show? This is a Samuel French play. Okay. Uh, the particular edition, if you just want to read it and you want to read the version that I read, I ended up with a copy of an anthology called Four Plays. It is by William Inge. Mm-hmm. Most of these anthologies have really exactly what it says on the tin type titles. Right. Four Plays, Three Plays, Seven Plays. This is four plays by William Inge. It includes Comeback Little Sheba, Bus Stop, Picnic, and The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. I believe it was originally published by Random House. And I'm pretty sure this is the kind of thing you can find at a library or through interlibrary loans easy enough. Oh, yes. We sure love that interlibrary loan. Oh, it's it's really quite good. It's awesome. Well, in that case, I think that's all we have for Comeback Little Sheba. Our next play will be R.U.R., also known as Rossum's Universal Robots by Carl Chopek. Thanks again for listening, and if you want to find us on Twitter, we are at The Play Readers. Our intro and outro music is Delightful D by Kevin McLeod. As always, you can find more info about his work in our show notes. So until next time, don't forget to read the stage directions. (laughs) 